the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think if that's going to happen, we need three things. This is how any change happens, actually. Uh, the first thing you need is you need an accurate assessment of where you're at now. Right? You need to kind of look reality in the face. A second, uh, you need a clear vision of what you're aiming for in the future. Uh, and third, you need something uh, that's going to move you from where you're at now to where you want to be in the future. Right? Three simple things. Right, so so that's, those are the three broad things that we're going to look at today from this passage in Ephesians 4. So first, uh, let's try to get this accurate assessment of where we're at now. This is spiritually speaking. Uh, to do that, we've got to see the reality of our old lives. Right? If you're a Christian, this is the life that you've been saved from. Uh, have a look in verses 17 uh, to 19. I'm not going to read them out, but in these verses, Paul, uh, he gives us this really uh, confronting assessment of our spiritual condition before we become Christians. Uh, Four things I want you to notice in these verses. Uh, They they pick up different aspects of kind of who we are as people. The first is that that before you became a Christian, uh, you had a heart that was hard to God. Hard hearts. Uh, Look at verse 18. Paul says, uh, they... Right, that, that is the, the Gentiles, those who aren't Christians, right? and whoever you are, that, that's who all of us were, at least at one time. Uh, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God uh, because of the ignorance that is in them, due, Paul says, uh, to the hardening of their hearts. Right, that, that word hardening, uh, in Paul's day, it was used to describe, uh, a, I don't know if you've ever seen, a, a, a petrified piece of wood. You know, a piece of wood that, that over time has actually become a rock. It's also used to describe uh, people who had an eye condition where calluses had grown on their eyes so much uh, that they're completely blind. Right, this is the picture. This is a, this picture of a spiritual condition of someone uh, before they become a Christian, but became a Christian. Right? Their, their heart is so hard. It's like a stubborn rock uh, against God. Rather than humbly kind of surrendering to God as king, uh, we proudly shake our fists at God. Uh, we put on our own little, you know, you've been to a, a Christmas, uh, Christmas Day event and everyone does their kind of bonbons and pull out the, the Christmas party hats. Like That's what we're like with God. We put on our own little uh, kind of crowns, our party hat crowns, and we say, no, 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 I'm going to rule my own life. And we look a bit foolish, right? <coughs> But that's what we say to God. Right? Our hearts are hard to God and, and his rule over our lives. We want to rule our own lives. Uh, and Paul says, because our hearts are hard, uh, our minds are ignorant. Now, the, that might sound a bit harsh. He's not saying uh, people uh, who aren't Christians are ignorant of all things. Right? Some people are quite intelligent. Right? He's saying you're ignorant of spiritual things. The light of God's truth hasn't broken into your minds. This is the dominant idea in these verses, right? From from the end of verse 17. Have a look at it there. Paul says we had futility in our thinking. Then he goes again. We were darkened in our understanding. And then again, there was ignorance in our minds. Three times. right? But because our hearts were hardened to God, uh, there was no light of God's truth. Our, Our minds were darkened. God's truth that's revealed to us in his word, that's revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the one who is the way, the truth and the life, they weren't a part of our minds. They they didn't fill our minds. 
And so we had hard hearts, ignorant minds. And Paul says because of that, spiritually speaking, uh, we were dead. No spiritual life. Right? We were separated from the life of God. Our God is the source of all life and blessing. Everything good comes from God. He created life, he sustains life. He's the source of life. So if you harden your heart against God, if you reject God's truth, spiritually speaking, uh, you're dead. Uh, Harry, do you want to flick up that picture? Uh, This is what we're like spiritually. If we can flick up the picture of the fish. Sorry, I should have given you a bit more lead in. Here it is, fish jumping. This is what we're like spiritually. Right, this fish, right, swimming around in the confines of the fishbowl, thinking, man, life sucks, I'm so restricted, I'm so oppressed, I'm going to jump out, I'll experience more freedom, I'll experience more life. And of course the fish jumps out, and for a while it looks like it's alive. You know, little kind of movements on the table, right? It looks like it's alive, it's not so bad. But we know it's dead, isn't it? It's dead because it's cut off from its source of life. It's separated from water. That's what it needs to live, to, to thrive. And this, this is what we do spiritually. Right? We think, oh, we're so oppressed by God. God's so restrictive. God so limits my fun and my freedom, my pleasure so much. I need to reject him. I need to jump away from him. I'll experience more freedom, more life. But in the process, you're cutting yourself off. You're separated from the life of God. You might look like you're alive. Uh, But really, spiritually, there's deadness in your soul. Hard hearts, ignorant minds, and dead souls. That's a glum picture. And Paul says it's all that that leads to immoral lives. Thanks, Harry, you can take that off now. Uh, In verse 19, have a look at verse 19. Paul says, having lost all sensitivity... Uh, They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. You you can see the the downward spiral in these verses, I hope. Hard hearts lead to ignorant minds, lead to dead spirits, dead dead souls, uh, which then lead to immoral lives. Incidentally, this is why so many of us are frustrated when it comes to change, right? Because there's stuff in our life, our behaviour, our actions that we really don't like. We're frustrated by it, but we don't realise that there's deeper layers of things that are driving that behaviour. It's just the tip of the iceberg, you see. There's truth in our minds that needs to be addressed. There's hard hearts that need to be addressed. There's, There's spiritual deadness that needs to be addressed by the power of God's spirit, as we plug away trying to change behaviour, when really that's just the tip of the iceberg. And this is the life that all of us, Paul says, or if you're a Christian, uh, have been saved from. Or we either have or need to be saved from this life. This is the reality of our old lives. And now let's look at the end of the passage. At the end of the passage, verses 25 to 32. But these are the verses uh, that give us a, a really clear vision, a clear picture of our new life. But it's, a, it's a Christ-like life. It's a life that God has saved us for, to live out who we are in Christ. Uh, I want to group this section under the headings of our hearts and our mouths and our hands. Right? There's lots of different details, but let, let's look under those three headings. Right, first, our hearts. 
Uh, have a look in verses 31 and 32. Uh, Paul says, Our hearts should be full of kindness, of compassion, and a willingness to forgive, essentially, not of anger and bitterness and malice. Right? Get rid of all bitterness, Paul says. Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Excuse me. I think this is how Christians should feel about each other, how Christians should relate to one another. And I don't know about you, but certainly I have known plenty of people uh, who say that they're Christians, uh, but they've got bitterness in their hearts. They're incredibly bitter people. Their heart is gripped by anger, by cynicism, by discouragement. Uh, They feel completely justified in holding grudges against all sorts of people. They feel justified in not forgiving other people, in not being uh, reconciled with a brother or sister in Christ. Their heart is gripped by bitterness. And often this this hidden bitterness, uh, it leads them to be full of anger and rage. Anger, that's that's this this kind of constant anger that's really just simmering beneath the surface in their life. It's there all the time. And every now and then it, it, it bursts out of their heart in fits of rage when someone ticks them off. They've got a really short fuse. Paul says they they might even start brawling with other people. It's a funny translation. It's not so much physical violence, like that's how we think about brawling. Uh, It's more verbal violence, confrontation, verbally, trying to cut someone to pieces with your tongue. This is someone who's, uh, who's really lost all control. You know, when you get angry, the, the, the frontal lobe switches off. Capacity for rational thought is pretty low. And you're just firing away, unregulated. And for this sort of person, if verbal violence doesn't work, they resort to malice and slander. Either they'll go behind the person's back, they'll scheme, they'll plot, they'll do everything they can to destroy the person that they hate. And this is ugly, isn't it? It's ugly. And Paul says there's no place for this in the church. No place. We have to exterminate these things. They're like termites. If we don't get rid of these things, they'll eat out the church from the inside. Instead of these ugly qualities, Paul says our hearts should be full of kindness, of compassion, of a willingness to forgive. Why is that? Not not just because God says so. I mean, they're good things to do. Everyone agrees you should be kind and compassionate. It's not just because of that. It's because uh, if you're a Christian, you understand that in Christ, in his death on the cross, God has shown you the ultimate kindness. Sending his son to die in your place on the cross. Why should you be kind? Not just because it's a rule to tick off. Because your heart has been captured by the incredible kindness of God. That's why you should be kind. You uh, uh, You should be compassionate. Not just because the world says compassion is an admirable quality to have, but because God has shown you incredible compassion. God has has looked on you in your spiritual poverty. You've got nothing to offer God. God, The the Bible says our uh, our righteous deeds, our best deeds, are just filthy rags in the sight of God. Here we are, spiritual beggars. And God looks at us, he, he clothes us, he heals us, he gives us new life. It's incredible compassion. 
And why should you be forgiving? Because in Christ, God has paid the cost that forgiveness requires. Right, so you're free to forgive other people. You don't have to harbour anger or, or bitterness or, or malice in your heart. You don't have to make other people pay for their sins anymore because Christ has paid on the cross, you see. So we're free to forgive. This is, I don't know, I think this is a great vision. Imagine being a part of a community who lived like this. Hearts that are overflowing with kindness, with compassion, a willingness to forgive, rather than anger and bitterness and malice. Oh, but there's an interesting thing in this passage, isn't there? Uh, because even though Paul goes hard in saying get rid of all these forms of, of sinful anger, uh, verses 26 and 27 seem to suggest, or in fact they make it clear, I think, uh, that there are some times when you should be angry if you're a Christian. Right? Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. But if you're being like Christ, there are some things you should be angry about. Uh, there's lots of them. I'll mention a few examples. I think we should be angry uh, when we hear that thousands of unborn babies are being killed in our state. We should be angry about that. We should be angry when we hear uh, the horrible stories of women and children who are victims of brutal domestic violence in our community. We should be angry uh, when we uh, hear stories of how church leaders in our own country, in our own city, in our own denomination indeed, have abused children who are under their care. We should be angry, I think, when we hear how our country, I know this is complicated, but I think we should be angry when we hear how our country is treating asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus Islands. <coughs> These are just a few examples of the kind of things I think we should be angry about as Christ is angry. But too often we're apathetic. We take the kind of head-in-the-sand approach when we should be outraged. Right? There's a place for anger, righteous anger. Having said that, it's very hard for us as sinful people to express our anger in a righteous way. And Paul knows that. Right? That's why he's so quick to, to qualify this statement in, in three different ways. He says, first, uh, that we should never sin in our anger. Now, how do we know if our anger is righteous, if we're sinning in our anger? Oh, well, I think at least one mark is that righteous anger is almost always on behalf of other people not on behalf of yourself. All those examples I gave, right? It's anger on behalf of injustice that's been perpetrated against other people, right? I, I think if you're angry because of how someone has treated you, it's fairly likely that your anger's mixed up with some ungodly pride and probably with a desire to make someone pay for their sins. I'm not saying there's not something in there, right? We've just got to be very careful, about labelling our anger as righteous anger, knowing the sinfulness of our own hearts. A second, Paul says we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. Right, if anger is like the embers of a fire, or right, it's kind of simmering away in your heart, you should put that out as quickly as possible so it doesn't get misdirected. 
Right? Get rid of it, Paul says. Uh, particularly uh, if your anger is, is against a brother or sister in Christ. Right? You should seek to be reconciled to them as soon as possible, preferably before the sun goes down, before you go home tonight, perhaps. Uh, if you don't do that, Paul says, uh, you'll give the devil a foothold. This is the, the God is in the business of bringing peace, of bringing reconciliation, of bringing wholeness. That's God's vision for the cosmos. The devil's vision is division. Uh, his vision is division, fragmentation, hostility, conflict. And the devil knows that it's a very fine line between righteous and sinful anger. And so what's he looking? He's looking for a foothold, right? He's looking for the tiniest opportunity to destroy the unity that God has brought between Christians. You've heard about this in Ephesians, right? The second half of Ephesians 2, a new humanity in Christ. The start of Ephesians 4, people who are one in the Spirit, who need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. What does the devil want to do? He wants to rip us apart. He wants to use our sinful anger to introduce hostility and division and conflict into the church. So we must not let the sun go down on our anger. If you need to be reconciled, be reconciled quickly. So here's the vision though. The vision is that as a church, uh, we would only express anger that is driven by love for others, by what's best for them. And we wouldn't express anger that's driven by love for ourselves, by pride, and what's best for us. That's our hearts. Uh, of course, Jesus says that, uh, you remember this verse, our mouths speak out of the overflow of our hearts. Uh, so Paul has a couple of things to say about how we use our mouths. Verse 29, he says, the words that come out of our mouths should build other people up rather than tear them down. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Paul says, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Uh, The word unwholesome is a word that's used to describe a piece of fruit that is rotten. It's unwholesome. You wouldn't give it to someone. And in the same way, it's not good to give another person rotten words. It does them no good. It does them harm. Don't speak unwholesome words to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to anyone, Paul says. And notice the alternative, right? The alternative is someone uh, who in the midst of a conversation is thinking, what words can I speak right now? Notice the words uh, that will be helpful to this person. But how can I build this person up according to their needs? Imagine this, in conversation, in the break, after church. How can I be helpful to this person with my words? How can I benefit them? How can I build them up? Right? It's not just trotting out your, your favourite religious cliché, your kind of top ten Bible verses that come out of a holster, whether they're relevant or not. Right? Like this is really listening to someone so that you are really in touch with what their needs are and so you can speak words that you have deliberately chosen to build them up according to their needs. 
Words that are helpful to them, that uh, will bring greater life and encouragement and strength to them. And I pray that this church would be full of people who use their mouths like that, who are intentional about that at every opportunity. And second, in verse 25, Paul says that the words that come out of our mouths should be truth, not lies. Therefore, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Buddy, if you're a Christian, you claim to follow the one who is full of grace and truth. You remember John chapter 1? Uh, John chapter 14, that the one who is the way, the truth and the life. Uh, So you should be someone who not only uh, avoids lying to other Christians, to other people, uh, but seeks to actively speak the truth to them. You you should be a person of your word. And Paul says that not just because uh, these people sitting here today are your neighbours, are people that you're commanded to love, uh, but also because they're, your, your, they're members of the same body as you, the body of Christ. Right, so I was reading during the week, uh, one commentator said that, that any time a Christian lies to another Christian, it's like a stab into the very heart of Christ. Like this is the body of Christ. It's incredibly destructive to, to lie. Right? All genuine community is built on trust. And you can't trust anyone if you can't trust their words. And that that applies to to big things, like big lies. But it also applies to, oh yeah, I'll be in touch about that coffee. But you never will be. It also applies to the I'm interested button on Facebook. Because you don't want to be the person who locks yourself in to a yes or no. Like we want to be people of our word. Jesus says, let your yes be your yes, let your no be your no. Be someone of integrity. Speak the truth to people. I'm not saying that sometimes you don't know and you can kick interested. And, but I, I, the aim should be to lock ourselves in and be people of integrity who are people of our word, not to be people who dodge speaking the truth somehow, who don't follow up on what we say we're going to do. And this is not just outright lying to others. It, it's speaking words that are truthful, that are reliable, that other people can depend on. That's what holds community together. Uh, words that are truth, not lies. Uh, finally, verse 28, Paul talks uh, about our hands. Uh, anyone who has been stealing, he says, must steal no longer, uh, but must work, doing something useful with their hands uh, that they may have something to share with those in need. Right? You notice that the put on and put off thing, we're going to talk about that in a second, but like we not only stop stealing from others, we, so we uh, do something, or we start working hard with our hands so that we can be generous to other people. We're not just interested in supporting ourselves, but our aim is to be able to be generous. Now, I dare say uh, most of us here have never stolen anything in our lives, uh, perhaps apart from a, a pen from the workplace or, or, or something like that. I don't know. Self, yeah, yeah. Uh, Right? But that doesn't mean this isn't relevant. Right? I mean, that's the pointy end of it. But this verse is saying, I think, that when you become a Christian, uh, you want to use your hands to give rather than take. That's what stealing is. You want to be someone who gives rather than takes. 
So instead of thinking, uh, what can I take from this person, uh, from this workplace, from this church, from this community, for my own benefit, your mindset as a Christian is saying, what can I give to this person, this workplace, this church, this community, for their benefit? Right? It's an other person-centred mindset rather than a self-centred mindset. Right? That's the vision, to be people whose hands are giving, not taking. So how does all this change happen? I dare say a lot of us uh, don't feel like we're very like the people described in verses 25 to 32. How do we get from the life described in verses 17 to 19 to this Christ-like life? Well, it's those verses in the middle, verses 20 to 24. And essentially, it's this ongoing process of repentance and faith. It's putting off our old life, right, repenting of that life, and it's putting on a new life. That's how we express our faith. And what's clear in these verses is that this isn't just a one-off event. I mean, it is a one-off event. When you become a Christian, you have to repent and believe. You make a decision to turn away from your old life and to turn towards your new life. But here, it's clear that it's an ongoing process, a process that begins in our minds, in our minds. So if we want to experience any change in our lives, we have to really put off the lies that shaped our old lives and put on the truth that should shape our new life. Well, let, let me show you that from, from verse 20. Right, make sure you're looking at verse 20 and I'll, I'll read it and I'll try to emphasise all the words that are drawing out this idea of truth, of teaching, uh, of our minds. Right, have a look at there, verse 20. That, however, uh, Paul says, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We saw this in verses 17 to 19. Before we became Christians, if you were a Christian, uh, there was this spiritual ignorance in our minds. The light of God's truth wasn't there. Uh, But then the the truth of the gospel breaks in, the truth embodied in Christ, and from that point on, uh, for the rest of your life, you're engaged in this process of putting off the lies of your old life and putting on the truth of your new life. And this is the key if you want to experience any change in your life, this is where it starts. Right? Underneath, this is what Paul's saying, underneath every sinful action, every sinful behaviour is a lie. Right? That seems strong, right? But it's a lie about who God is and what he's done. Right? So, so if you want to change how you live, uh, which all of us do, I think, you first got to hear and trust and live out the truth of who God is and what he's done. And now, of course, there are masses of truths about who God is and what he's done. Where do you start? Uh, well, uh, in this book, uh, You Can Change, there's one copy up the back and there's one copy here. Uh, you can rush to get it later. Uh, but uh, Tim Chester, uh, he helpfully kind of summarises these truths with four Gs. Uh, the truth is... 
You can write them down if you want. The truth is that God is great, God is good, God is gracious, and God is glorious. Right? And, and every time uh, you think or feel or live in a way that is sinful, it's because on some level you just don't believe one of those core truths about God. Right? We're believers, but we've got unbelief. For example, I'll give you a bunch of examples. Right? Uh, you might be someone uh, who is always getting frustrated with other people. Uh, you're a very angry person. Uh, that could be because uh, you just don't believe that God is gracious. Right? And because you don't believe God is gracious, uh, you spend most of your life trying to prove yourself to other people. Or you have to be right all the time. You have to win every argument. Uh, you're incredibly defensive when people criticise you because they're pointing out a flaw, right? And you don't want to give up the idea that you're good and, and right and perfect. So you can say on one level, yes, I'm saved by grace, but your level of, of defensiveness and anger suggests that you're still trying to prove yourself to God and others by what you do. You just don't believe, really, that God is gracious. Maybe. Or you could be someone who struggles with being worried all the time. You're a very anxious person. And for some of you, that might be a, a chemical issue. Right? You've got to go to the doctor, you've got to get some medication sorted out. But usually, it's also a spiritual issue. Right? On some level, you, you just aren't convinced that God is great. That God is in control of, of all things. Right? So if you feel like that if you're not in control, uh, then your only option is to be anxious. Because right? you certainly can't trust God to be in control. Right? If you don't have it, God certainly doesn't have it. Right? You're great, God not so much. Or perhaps you're someone who has uh, this real uh, inconsistency in how you live. Right? You're, you're a chameleon. Right? You, you act one way with these people at work, a different way at church, a different way at uni. And it's all because, really, you're a people pleaser. Right? You're desperate for people to like you. I've been a little bit like this. And I've had to show my, I have to say to myself, it's because deep down, I just don't believe that God is glorious. That God is the one that I should fear and respect above all others. Right? In my life at times, the weight of other people's opinions has been way heavier than the weight of God's opinion. And so there's been inconsistency in how I live. So I just do whatever it takes to get people to like me. Or perhaps you're someone who uh, struggles with this constant feeling of emptiness, of, of dissatisfaction. Oh, you try to fill the emptiness, of course, uh, with a bit of lust, perhaps, a bit of pornography here, with possessions, with uh, that person who, who's the love of your life. Right? They were, they were going to fill it. With children, with money, with experiences. Oh, but whatever you do, you're left with that nagging feeling of emptiness. Why is that? 
Well, it's because you've bought into the oldest lie in the book, right? The one that the devil whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden. Is God really good? You're not convinced of that. So you're looking elsewhere. You're pursuing goodness and beauty and pleasure apart from God. You're not convinced that God is enough. This is, this is what happens for, for all of us, right? It's, it's the kind of carryover of our old life that we're trying to undo for the rest of this life. Every moment of every day, we've got to be putting off the lies of our old life, lies about who God is and what he's done, and putting on the truth of our new life, the truth of who God is and what he's done. And that's why the centre of this chapter is Paul saying that if the body of Christ is going to be built up, we have to speak the truth to one another. You remember, verse 15, speak the truth to one another in love. Remind one another of the truth of the gospel. That's how real change happens. And that means that if you want to experience real change in your life, it's going to be in the church. You have to be deeply connected with the church. I'm not saying there's no place for a psychologist or a therapy group or a counsellor. There's definitely a place for those things. Don't hear me saying that. But they are no substitute for the church. Paul's saying that the root cause of all our sinful behaviours is that we believe lies about God. And where's the place? The one place on earth where you're regularly going to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. It's in the church. You must be deeply connected with the church if you want to experience real change in your life. And of course, uh, and, and that's why we have to pursue a culture in this church where we are honest with one another. But honest about what sins we're struggling with and the trials we're enduring and, and the doubts that we're, we're, that we're wrestling with. If, if we're not honest, Uh, There's no way we'll be able to speak the truth of the gospel to one another, as Paul says here, according to each other's needs, in a way that will be helpful to others, in a way that will benefit them. Those those are the words Paul uses. If you don't know each other, if we don't know each other, our words will just remain, skate over the surface as superficial conversations, no idea of each other's needs, no idea of what would be helpful or beneficial. You see? And at worst, stuck in spiritual immaturity. Because the word of the gospel is not building us up. And of course, some of you hate this idea of being honest with other people, honest about your sin, your doubt, your suffering. And why do you think that is? Well, let me speak the truth of the gospel to you. It could be because uh, you just don't believe that God is gracious. You can't let someone see the real you because then they'll know you're not perfect. Your cover will be blown. You've worked hard to kind of patch together that veneer of righteousness. You can't reveal your sin to anyone. If we're going to experience change in this church, we've got to get rid of that lie. We've got to remind each other that we're not accepted by God because of our performance, but because of Christ's performance. So we can be honest with one another. You don't have to to wear your heart on your sleeve in every conversation with every person. That's not what I'm saying. But in the right place with the right people, there's got to be a degree of honesty and vulnerability, transparency. 
Uh, others here are okay with that, right? You're a very open person. You love sharing what's on your heart. Like you're all over that. Uh, but you hate the idea of speaking the truth of the gospel to someone else. You're all about the D and M, as long as you don't have to say anything particularly about the gospel. Right? Why is that? Well, it could be because, I mean, there could be all sorts of reasons, right? But the hard thing, right, the thing I think that's driving it is that you might not believe that God is glorious. So you're afraid that if you say something to someone else, uh, it might get a bit awkward. They might not like it. So you either don't say anything or you just chat about the weather or the footy or, or something else, right? And once again, if we're going to experience change in this church, we have to get rid of that lie. It's a lie. Right? We've got to remind each other that the Lord Jesus died on the cross uh, so we can have the approval, not just of some person at church, a brother or sister in Christ, but of the creator of the universe. Right? So you are free to take the risk of speaking the truth in love to a brother or sister in Christ because you are much more concerned about their maturity in Christ than you are about whether they like you or not. That doesn't mean you're a jerk. It doesn't mean you're kind of fire on all cylinders. Like, you know, let them have it with both barrels. Like it, it just means you're free. You're free to speak the truth to someone in an awareness of what's going to be helpful for them, what's beneficial for them according to their needs. Like we, we live in a world where everyone wants to change. Everyone knows that, uh, that they fall short of their ideal self. You don't have to be a Christian for that. And in this passage, Paul's uh, saying that God has given us the church so that over time, as we remind each other of the truth of the gospel, we can put off the, the lies of our old life and put on the truth of our new life. Right? And the more that happens the more we'll become like our ideal self, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the vision for this community, for this church. So let me pray uh, that we would be a community that uh, embodies this more and more. Let's pray. Eh? Our Father, uh, you know each of our hearts. Uh, you know the areas of our life where uh, we struggle and that we really long to see change. Oh, we thank you for your word that, that speaks to this longing in our hearts. Oh, I pray that you would make this a community uh, where, the truth, uh, where people are increasingly uh, uh, liberated by the gospel uh, to be able to speak the truth of the gospel to one another uh, because we long to see one another built up towards maturity in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, please, Father, uh, may there be enough transparency in this church and we make people be clear that they're saved by grace and so they can be honest about their, their sin, their failures, their weaknesses. Uh, we can be honest with one another so that we can know each other's needs and speak the truth of the gospel into those needs. Uh, help those of us who are leaders in this church, who are training people in word ministry, may we equip uh, this church, this body, to be able to do this work uh, of reminding one another of the truths of the gospel. Uh, Father, we, uh, many of us have been in churches our whole lives and have rarely experienced a conversation that moves beyond small talk. Our Father, we long for this church to be different. And not just in those rare glimpses when perhaps we meet up with one person in the church every couple of years or something, but, but uh, in a day-to-day -day occurrence, Father, where we'd speak the truth in love to one another and experience real transformation 
as a church, as, as individuals, we become more like our Lord Jesus. For his glory we pray. Amen.